This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to First Edition. I'm thrilled to have National Book Award winning, multi-New York Times bestseller, and just out and out one of my favorite and most exciting authors working today, James McBride on the show. This is a Reading Life episode where we talk about his early memories of reading, what books were important to him, how he understands the value of books and writing, and talk a little bit about what motivates him as a writer. This is all on the occasion of the publication of his new novel, The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, which I am so happy to say is really excellent. It's complicated but fun, optimistic without being naive, and just what I love to find when I pick up a new James McBride book. So go check that out. It's available now, but maybe wait till after listening to this episode. Okay, here we go. I read Beverly Clearly a lot when mm-hmm. I was a kid. Yeah, just kid too. books. But it was good stuff. I liked it. It was an innocence to it. And those, I think that would be my first memory of reading and, and passages from the Bible that were, you know, force fed to me in Sunday school. And all I would acknowledge him and he will direct that path and that kind of business. Me too. The, the Bible and then the library for me. So how would a Ramona Quimby book get into your hands? Library, family, school? A, a library and family. My house was full of books. We, we read tons of books when I was a kid. We didn't really, weren't allowed to watch television. Mm. It was either books or music. And for me, it was both because we had a piano and we had plenty of books. And that was your only private space. When you mm. got, when you sat down at the piano and hammered away at something, or you pulled a book up and just piled yourself into a corner beneath the pile of clothes and started reading. Early books that I really liked were William Saroyan's book, The Human Comedy, was a book that affected me a lot. It was about a kid who, if I recall correctly, it was about a kid who used to run telegrams around town, living news to people. And and in doing so, he evolved into a kind of person himself. And you saw a lot of, you saw the community in my neighborhood in Brooklyn and and later in, in Queens where we lived. We had a community. There was a grocery store and there was dry cleaners and all that kind of stuff. And so I related to that a lot. And it also gave me a world that was better than my own because I lived in mm. subways and buses and taking long bus rides to school and subways all the time. And he didn't have to do that. He I believe he just rode his bicycle around. And uh, yeah, I think that's said in the Sen. California, of California, kind of a Steinbeckian world with you can walk down the street and farms and a certain amount of freedom. Because right. you grew up in Red Hook, right? Do I remember? Yeah, that? I lived in Red Hook and then later in, in St. Albans, Queens. And Red Hook was the projects and St. Albans was a neighborhood. Of, it was, I'd say middle class, lower middle class people, mm-hmm. working class people, I'd say. Yeah. It was reflective of my world, though, though it didn't include some of the cultural things that existed right. in my life. But a lot of things were similar. There were a lot of similarities between, I fell between this kid and myself, thinking back, because there were a lot of things that went over his head that he still had to handle. Yeah. My right. life, well, everything was over my head. I didn't know nothing, yeah. man. I, I didn't know whether I was coming or going. I just knew that I had to go to school 
and I had to go to church. And when I came home, I, I couldn't go out to play that much. When the sun came down, I had to come in the house. Mm. And there were always books around. And I just loved I loved disappearing into that world. I, I'd slip into a closet to read. I loved to read. Even when I was very, as a child, I was my mother was always very pleased by that. Because my mother mm. was completely into books. My mother and my stepfather were mm. both big proponents of reading. But if you were reading a book, you know, your chance of getting into trouble or spanked that you did earlier would lessen greatly, unless, of course, you just totally transgressed. I remember one time I did something wrong, and one of my brothers had a book called Great Men of Medicine. Okay. My mother marched into the living room. She was mad about something, and I cracked that book open, man. I, I probably was reading it upside down. <laughs> but she saw the cover. Her anger dropped down a couple of notches. Great Men yeah. of Medicine, because my mother, if you were a doctor, you wanted to become a doctor. That was like that was yeah. like the promised land. The promised yeah. land. That's right. Yeah. What did she read? Do you remember what she read? Your stepfather? He read mostly. He he was a furnace fireman for the New York City House okay. Authority. So he fixed yeah. furnaces and he was into, occasionally he'd be like popular mechanics or something, anything sure. involving pressure valves and pipes and fittings and steel nipples that fit on this, that, and the other tools. Yeah. But my mother read everything. She read the newspaper mm-hmm. and she loved to read books. She would, when she left for work, she'd always have a book in her hand. And she read pretty much everything. And she would recommend mm. books for us to read. Um, mm. And in my house, To Kill a Mockingbird was a huge, huge a bestseller, as it were. Because we yeah. wore that book out. And The Bluest Eye, when I, got, when I grew older, that was a big one. And we would recommend books to each other because my siblings read quite a bit. We all read because we weren't really allowed to watch um, television. You have quite a few siblings. Yeah, I had 11 siblings. That's and several were in college by the time I came of age and learning and and the whole thing of do you have to go to college and it's good to read books and so that was also part of the it was all about books and music in my house and i I think about that now the liberal arts being under fire in school Mm. it's just the worst thing you could do for a young person by not giving them music literature history Mm -hmm. sociology psychology these things they inspire. They are the roots of creativity. Did anything your older siblings read trickle down to aspirational read and check out what they were looking? How did how did the hand me down um, or waterfall of influence happen? Well, that was pretty significant in my house. I think the autobiography of Malcolm X was one that made its way into my hands. To Kill a Mockingbird was another, and The yeah. Bluest Eye, probably The Bluest yeah. Eye more than any. Yeah, was a book that that just was worn out. We would wear books out because we. Someone would start reading it and slip it under the bed, and they'd go to bed and find it gone, and somebody else was reading it, and they'd get into fights about it and so forth. <laughs> but I remember the bluest eye well because I, I read that through before anybody yeah. could get hold, before anybody could snatch it from me. The other books that made their way down the, geez, I can't remember it. James Baldwin, geez, those are the main ones that I can recall. So once you got into school, where are you? a good student of reading or you wanted to read your own thing or how did that translate into your experience of reading in school? I didn't translate very much. I mean, I was a good student as a young youngster, but there weren't many books that I read in school that yeah. I related to. We weren't, I went to, I was one of the few black students in, in, at CPS and I went to Rose, I went to a couple of elementary schools, but the one I remember the best is in Rosedale, Queens. And we were, there were very few black students in that school. Yeah. So that wasn't wasn't a great experience for me. But when I went to junior high school, 
reading wasn't part of it was rigorous public school sure. study, but there was no English teacher that really lit, lit did, up the fire. Yeah. yeah, I did have, I do recall I had a teacher named Miss Abdullah who was in the second or third grade, who, and another teacher named Mrs. Alexander, who was, I think she was a kindergarten teacher. Miss Abdullah was, I guess she was a Muslim of some type in Middle Eastern, and Miss Mrs. Alexander was a white woman. And I remember they told my mother that James is really smart. I don't know. I don't know. But they didn't say it, it, I don't know if reading had anything to do with that. And yeah. I don't know if that what they said. But we had to do writing assignments and we had to do written assignments in school. And I was good at those things because I read a lot of books. And I went to the library. We were allowed to go to the library. Mm-hmm. The New York Public Library was just. In fact, I wrote a little bit of The Color of Water in the Brooklyn Public Library. Is that right? When I was working on it. Yeah. Because I used to play. Uh, baseball in Prospect Park. This is before mm-hmm. yuppified Brooklyn when Prospect yeah, Park yeah. was you know, like people would smoke a joint there and nobody would get mad. And uh, sometimes I'd tip over to the Brooklyn Public Library with a yellow legal pad and write down some ideas and stroll through the neighborhood because my mother had lived in that neighborhood at some when she was a young woman. But yeah, I, I, libraries are they're the they are the fortresses of freedom. They were that way for me. If your mom came in your room and you were reading, is there anything you could have been reading that she would have said? Well, no, or I'm maybe sure there were. I'm sure there were, but she wouldn't find out about it. Okay. I don't know that the autobiography of Malcolm X was a popular book in her mind. Probably it was. Okay. Probably. But my siblings read it anyway and passed it around yeah. to each other. They read books about like Jim Brown and Muhammad Ali and that kind of stuff. My mother wasn't into that too much, not because she didn't like, again, my mother was a white woman raising black kids in New York. It wasn't like she was against that stuff. She just wanted her kids to do well. Anything that got in the way of that, she was totally against. There weren't any books that were forbidden or verboten in my house. And we didn't live in an era now, like we're now where some of our major politicians or would-be presidents are yelling and screaming about we lived in a time when we were informed that the Nazis would take books, pile them up in the street and burn them. And, and that was bad. And that was a bad thing. Yeah, that was considered bad. <laughs> so now that's considered healthy. Give me a break. I wish people would wake up to where we are. This is, this is serious business. When one or two knuckleheads can go to a school board meeting and raise their hand and say, I object to this because of my religion. That's just, it's just a bunch of nonsense. The older I get, the more I think the religion, some elements of religion are just too much. In the new book, especially trying to figure out how religion connects and doesn't connect and what's useful and what's not useful. You have to decide in your own life where you're using God as a baseball bat, as opposed to what he or she is really about. That's a personal choice. When you fold that into religion and try to make it principle or law, you're making a mistake. And ultimately, it's going to backfire and hurt not just other people. It's going to hurt you, too. So in this current book, I roll out all sorts of religious business. But I present it within the framework of a society and with the framework of a people who are not sure what to keep and not sure what to yeah. keep behind, what to leave behind. And the, the discourse is healthy. It's when you make a choice that you're going to keep something by God. This is how it's going to go because God said it. Look, if if God's so busy, how come he ain't here? What if you go to heaven and God's a cyclops with one eye in the middle of his head? And he's a man with female genitalia. What do you do then? Nobody's come back to tell us. So Mm. enough already. 
it's about knowledge and about celebrating the good things in every religion, because all the good things are the same. So let's work with that. Everyone who does what we do or cares about what we care about has this on their minds. And I don't know, I don't know that you can beat the drum loud enough still. Um, to I don't think you can. Better. I don't yeah. think you can. I think you have to. Mm-hmm. I think you're forced to. And if you're going to do it, then just ball your fist up and swing it as hard as you can. Because this is important. It's about free thought. And that's what democracy is. That's the, the principal element of dem- democracy. Free thought, free speech, real speech, real talk, real discourse. Not someone angling for power by pressing your buttons. If your buttons are so fragile and they're so clear that someone can press them like that, then you need to examine your internal organs mm. and see what's going on. It matters that a kid has access to something because if their parents don't um, give them something, they want to find it in some other way. You know, because not everyone has parents that's going to, or or siblings that's going to have books around and say it's cool and fine. The other river in your, or the other tributary in your river seems like is music, right? And music doesn't get banned so much as defunded in public schools. That's how music gets banned in public schools. It gets defunded. That's true. And what uh, what's happened with, what, what has happened with music is that there's so much quote-unquote product that just pushes, gets pushed into the world as a result of the internet and YouTube mm-hmm. and so forth and TikTok and whatever, that you don't know what's good. Yeah. And, uh, and school is the place where you can actually delineate what's, you can see what's good and what's not, what's worthy and what's not. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a kid who grows up loving hip hop music, understanding that the third violin part of a Mozart piece makes if you pull it out and play it by mm. itself it makes perfect sense there's no mm-hmm. difference for me between a, a third violin part of a mozart concerto and a and the bass part to john coltrane's love supreme or tupac shakur's latest one of his great hits minus the the profanity mm-hmm. it's art and art art inspires thought and creativity and that's what makes this nation a great one, the, the ability to our willingness to allow young people to think freely and to be creative. And you can't do that by pigeonhole, pigeonholing young people into corners and saying, you can't read this because it'll give you these thoughts. They're going to have the thoughts anyway. All you need to do is pick up a cell phone. You can pick up a cell phone now and get all the pornography you want when you're 10 years old. So what are you worrying about this? It's just bull. It's crap. It's nonsense. It's just power mongering. It's just mm. shoveling people's shoving people's thoughts down an alley, hoping that little Heather or little Rufus or little Johnny are not going to get the wrong idea. They're going to get the wrong idea. And you have to be good enough parent or good enough teacher, or good enough administrator or good enough community to say, what well, we have here is stronger. It's better. Go ahead and read that stuff. It's not going to kill you. I think they should make high school kids in this country take a, a year off after they finish high school and serve somewhere. It would help. Our, it would, we wouldn't even have this debate mm. if our young people had to serve a year overseas building war, wells in Peru or helping helping villages build roads in, in Zimbabwe somewhere. We wouldn't even be having these debates because the humanity of others would be made clear to our children. But since we don't have that, we have to bring it to them in the form of books. So they can build as many walls as they want. It's not going to stop. It won't stop mm. from being read. It'd only make them more precious to those of us who understand what yeah. they have. Trying to contain the uncontainable is yeah. a losing proposition. Waste of time. So public school in New York, you didn't get a lot. 
inspiration necessarily doesn't sound like through high school even anything in high school that's right no and you have to yeah. remember in high school i was I, I basically dropped out for a while and i i always read comic books though even when oh yeah my weed smoking oh what, man. what were your favorite what were your favorite all, comics? all of them well i, I was a big spider-man guy and um, i'm sorry that it's just been watered down into 18 different versions well you were we were in queen so of course you were spider-man yeah and i love spider-man i thought he was good. and the yeah. hulk the incredible hulk he was a big deal in my house and i think back the whole business of identity mm. powered a lot of my work and I look back, the whole business of Hulk being this mild-mannered scientist named Bruce Banner. And then he would, rah, when he got angry, and Spider-Man being a kid that nobody pays attention to, they make fun of him at the paper and so forth, uh, was attracted to so Even in my heavy weed-smoking dropout high school days, I always read comic books. You go uh, spin the rack at the drugstore? How would you How would you pick? How would I get them? Yeah. Geez, man, I'm ashamed to say it. I, sometimes my brothers would have some laying around. Sometimes I'd buy them, and sometimes I would lift them out of drugstores or wherever I could find them. They were expensive to me at the time. Uh, and they also had all these ads at the back that were great, like you could you'd buy fish, that, like seahorses. I always wanted to buy sea monkeys. Yeah, you know, they would come to life, but I never did it. No, no, never did it. Dakota um, rings, x-ray glasses, all that kind of stuff. X-ray glasses was big. I always wanted to try those, too. But it never really worked. <laughs> it never really worked out for me. But I was a big, I wasn't a Superman fan. I was a big Spider-Man guy. And I fell in love with Edgar Allan Poe for a while. The telltale heart mm. to come to the death with that great agony. And later on, I realized that one of the, and also E.L. Doctorow. I was a big fan of his work. Ragtime. Also, Henrik Ibsen, who wrote mm. a play called Wojciech. I read that in college. And Carl Sandburg's Abraham Lincoln books. Mm. Yeah, I think they were two big volumes. Yeah. And when I became a little more sophisticated, when I learned about history in school, and when I got to college, started getting a little more interested in history and books about, about people that I admired. Yeah. So you've been doing all this reading from the time you're a kid. What did you have any inkling that you wanted to give your hand you try your hand at it? Like when did that start happening? It, I didn't, I, I had no desire to be a writer. What happened was when I went to Oberlin, I wasn't quite up to the same academic level that the school demanded. And they had, I don't know, 10 or 12 of us in a special class that we had to learn how to study and all this. That Oberlin was a great man. Thank God for Oberlin. But anyway, I had to take some kind of English writing course. And the professor's name was Tom Taylor. And I, I had to write an essay about something. And I wrote this essay, a story about this guy who he's a bad man and he goes into the bathroom and he has a flashback of some wrong that he'd done while he's sitting on the toilet <laughs> and he collapses <laughs> and he dies and the story ends. <laughs> and, and Professor Tom Taylor, who I later learned was like a visiting, he wasn't even like a, a tenured member of the faculty. Sure, yeah, he was passing through. He just said, he said, you have a talent for this. You have a talent for writing. You should explore that. And I was like, oh, no, man, I, I'm into music, man, I'm saxophone player. You know? But I never forgot that. Really, teachers are, you talk about heroes of society. If you want to see what a society is really, look at how they treat their young people. They're old people and they're teachers because teachers really made a huge difference in my life. I had a mm -hmm. teacher named Mr. Green in sixth grade. 
you heard me play the recorder and said, you have a real, you have a real touch for music. And I had a, a teacher at Oberlin, Professor Wendell Logan in music, who taught me more about life than I can tell you here. And a teacher named Jeffrey Blodgett, who was a historic history teacher at Oberlin, who was just fantastic. I didn't, in high school, my teachers were not that involved with me. I went to Cardoza High School in Queens, but I had, there was a guidance counselor there named Burton Silverman, who's still alive. He's 92. I still see him. And I was a troubled kid. And he used to take me into his office and talk to me. I was in a special class for truants. We all went to the same class together. So we taught each other how to shoplift and have smoke weed. <laughs> but they would send us to uh, Mr. Silverman like once a week or something. And Mr. Silverman did something. He said something to me one day that I never forgot. I was sitting in his office and he was trying to reach me. And he kept saying, yeah, well, you're so smart, blah, blah, blah. And I was. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. behind him, you could see out front where I would stand with the kids who were smoking weed and stuff. He said, OK, he said, if you want to go out there with the rest of those kids, go ahead, go make me be nothing. Go ahead. He said, but it's a damn waste. What a waste. And mm-hmm. I, at that point, 15 years old, even though I was in the morass of the teenage funk and cloud that got through to me, I still remember it now. And so after I got out of college and became a journalist and all this, and I looked him up and I used to go to Grand Rounds with him when he was at Long Island Jewish Memorial Hospital working as a psychologist mm-hmm. there. And I still see him. I saw him about two or three months ago. His son's a, uh, an assistant principal at a school in Queens. Yeah, teachers have a huge effect on young people. I mean, for most of us, it's the first time that an adult who's not related to us can say something to a kid that's, you've got something of value to offer. You know, there's, you can play the recorder, you can play soccer, you know, you can write a little bit and it feels different coming from someone who's not related to you. Absolutely. That's powerful. That's powerful. Absolutely. Yeah. The power of suggestion when you're that young and fragile and innocent Mm. is extraordinary. It's something we need to really pay more attention to. So you wrote a story about a man who dies during a flashback on the toilet and a teacher says something nice to you. Then what? I didn't follow up on it. I kept most of my studies at Oberlin, the music. But when I became a senior, two things happened. One is that we, Oberlin got into this whole business of divesting its funds from South Africa. And I learned oh. about Nelson Mandela and, mm-hmm. and social change. And, and I got really into that. And the other thing was I took a, a history course from a teacher named Jeffrey Blodgett. And he walked into the room one day and he said, I'm going to tell you a story about the greatest wrestler in the history of New Salem, Illinois. He was six feet four. He had the wingspan of a basketball player. His name was Abraham Lincoln. And I just became enthralled. And so I decided to apply to graduate school for music and for journalism. And I applied to Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. I wrote an essay and I got in. I could, mm. I'd never written for the school paper at Oberlin or anything like that. In fact, wow. I thought the people who wrote for the paper were brilliant. There were so many smart kids there. I owe a great deal to the school. Helped yeah. me a lot in every way. Both my sons went to Oberlin. I have mm. a son who's a senior there now. My other son, my oldest son went there. But in any case, so I applied to Columbia. I got in. And again, I wasn't like, I certainly wasn't at the top of my class. Columbia School of Journalism, Graduate School of Journalism is... It's serious business. Serious business, yeah. So anyway, 
I got through that, and then I, I went to Wilmington News Journal and became an uh, intern reporter there. Was that your idea to be a, rep- a newspaper writer when you when you applied, or what no, was your hope? No, man. Yeah. Well, at Columbia, I thought writing would change the world. Yeah. I wanted to change the world. I was into social change. I said, I'm going to be a journalist. I'm going to go out there and change yeah. the world. We see how that worked out. But well, could have, I guess. What if you hadn't? Could have been worse than it is now. But the dilemma was always whether it's going to be writing or music. And I didn't realize that it, at some point it could be both. Columbia was in New York, and uh, this was in 1980, and New York was different then. It was a lot cheaper and a lot, I don't know, I won't say it was more dangerous or not. And this whole business of New York being dangerous is ridiculous. I'm scared. Of, I'm, I'm more scared in Colorado and Arizona mm. and Mississippi than I am in the worst sections of New York. But that's a whole nother conversation. But in any case, I went there and they made us read The Power Broker by Robert Carroll. Oh. Before we entered school, they sent you a letter. Really? That was your, that's a high bar to get started. For yeah, they sent you a letter. When you got in, they sent you a letter and said, this is the book you have to read. And so I went and got it. And I was just blown away. Was that intimidating to read The Power Broker? Like, you know, coming into your first year, were you like, shit, I'm, they're expecting me to do stuff like oh, this? Oh, yeah, man. I was scared. Yeah. I, I was I, I said, I can't do this. This guy would he'd go into the, into the guts of the New Jersey, Pennsylvania Port Authority and come up with characters. And just like his one push into one character would be a thesis in anybody. Bell Moskowitz, who was, for example, the... I think she was the assistant to Robert Moses or mm-hmm. Robert Moses. This this guy knew how to do research. And that's what they pushed at, at Columbia. You have to mm-hmm. research. You can't write unless you report. And you have to report deep. And mm-hmm. Robert Carroll is a guy who was a writer who can report deep and write deep. And I've always tried to... I teach at NYU. I always push that on my students. And I also... I also just try to do that in my own work. You can't, if you're going to report it, it better have some bone in it. Otherwise, don't pluck the meat off the carcasses because you're just plucking off dead flesh. Your book is a a memoir. And then the book since then have a deep reporting. How do you manage that kind of reading? Do you read with a plan that like, here's my syllabus for this book? Do you come with it later? Like, how does that research and reading go into the writing process? Hmm. First, every book is a little bit different, mm-hmm. but at some point, the character needs muscle, like they need a shirt, they need, or they need a hand. They've got yeah. to be assembled, and they can't be fully assembled unless you have the internal organs. And in order mm-hmm. to learn the internal organs, you have to figure out like where this character came from. So 90% of what you learn, you don't use, but right. you, just, you figure it out by researching. And then this gives your character color, dimension. It gives them the mustache, the eyebrow. It, it it gives them a frame. They're framed in some sort of, and they're framed out. And mm-hmm. then you can let them walk from one room to the next. Because if they aren't, you can let them walk from one room to the next, but it'll read like a Pulp Fiction novel. Yeah. It'll read right. like something that you buy at the train station when there's nothing else, mm-hmm. when you got four hours to blow and you don't want to look at your phone. So. Mm-hmm. So I do a lot of research with my characters because I research them with the knowledge that everybody really wants the same thing. They want to be loved. They want to be happy. They want some sense of peace. They want a family. They want Mm -hmm. some kind of community. Whatever I research, I do that until until I can't stand it anymore. The thing is, if you want the book to have soul, then you have to talk about this object or this person or these events as if you were there. And so you have to know them really well. 
And in knowing them really well, you start to, you get so that I take notes. I, I'm always, I have notebooks. I always, I'm never far from a piece of paper and a pen. And I'm constantly taking notes, constantly gathering information all the time. I carry a little red book around all the time. I have stacks of these little memo books. That mm-hmm. I take them everywhere. I take one everywhere. If I go to the grocery store, I bring the book. So you're gathering this information. After a while, you're just like, you're full up. And when you get full up, you say, okay, I think I got enough now to, to push. <laughs> but you have to read a lot of books. If you're working on a character and then you have to stop and research more, yeah. you haven't done it. Then you weren't, then you didn't start out right. So do the notes become, are they reference material? Do you go back and look at them? Or is it a process of putting it all inside and when it time comes time to write, you're drawing on it, even if you don't know you're drawing on it? I almost never anything. look at my notes, Yeah, unfortunately. Sometimes if it's something specific, right. but I almost never yeah. look at them. I'm just too lazy. I'm just trying to get the information in my head. Right. And I'll let the music take over. And so it sounds like you're, you know, you put all this stuff in there and then your artistic process is that flame that reduces it down to what's usable. You put all that stuff in there, but then you're reducing it down to an essence or whatever pieces make the most sense out of all the stuff you've gathered. Uh, yeah, that's true. But you have to be able to scrap it all. You can't, you have to fall in love with your ideas and not your words. And otherwise you'll get jammed up. <laughs> the hard part is really putting it into action or realizing that, you know what, it's not going to work anyway. This p- current book really started out as a completely different book. I wanted to write a book about a camp that I worked at for handicapped kids for four summers when I was a student in college. And I wanted to, about the guy who ran it, his name was Cy Friend. He was an extremely gifted man. And he was an inspiration to all of us that worked there. The place was like a United Nations. It was very diverse. Before those words were bandied about, um, and Cy was gay and had to hide it. Oh, it was just, but the camp was, it was just a wonderful place. And, and he really believed in equality. If you didn't love those kids, you didn't last there very long. And he was brilliant. He was very insightful and just so caring and loving. And I wanted to write a book. So I started to write a book about a camp and about a camp director. And it just didn't work. I wrote many, Mm. several chapters. But the only chapter that seemed to hold together was this chapter about the guy who ended up giving the land to the camp. And his name was Moshi, and he was a theater owner in Potsdam. So that's the character that remained, or became the linchpin. the original manuscript, Moshi is the only thing that survived. All the other stuff about the camp, which happened in... You have to remember that when I wrote it as the present, or the present being 1975 or whatever, and pushing back into the, I guess, 1927 or whenever the the current book starts out, I realized that the present day story was just not working. It was the past story. It was about Moshe and the way he moved around, what he thought and what he tried to do and what his dreams were and how crazy Mm. life was, how difficult it was, (laughs) how funny he was and how... He was thinking thoughts he shouldn't think, but they were, and then he meets this woman. It just seemed, it just, good things connect. Mm. So I scrapped the whole camp thing, and I, it became a book about this theater owner whose wife runs a grocery store and how he loved this woman and how unique she was. And then she began to take over the book, and I just went with it. And then the other things that I wanted to show in this book about the camp show themselves in the, the character of Dodo and the, the little deaf mm-hmm. boy, and he has to go to an institution and the way they treat him and all that other business. And the love that he finds in mm. with Monkey Pants, who he meets mm. in Penhurst, which is a real place where they had real, you know, insane, so-called insane people and all of that stuff. And then fusing in the whole idea of 
African Americans and Jews and poor immigrants living in the same community, which happened all over this country, mm-hmm. or at certain parts of this country, anyways. That's how things connect in a book. If you just don't fall in love with your words, but fall in love with your idea, let the characters. That's the difference in novels. Characters, or good novels anyway. Characters rule the roost. How hard is it to? let something go like that? Was it a struggle to say, or was it so clear that the book wasn't working, you know, made it easier to let go of, or how hard is that to do? It's not hard for me to let go of stuff. I'm a jazz musician. When you're playing Mm. something in jazz and you're playing an idea that doesn't work, you better just get off it. Otherwise, somebody's going to get your job. I mean, so- They're not going to let you sit in the next time if you're messing with something that doesn't work. No, we can't sit in today. Just (laughs) don't get lost. So no, no, I'm not one of these people who like, feels like, I've got to keep it because it's so precious. There's nothing. Pre- Look, the deeper story is what's precious. That you hold on to. We we must get along. We must learn to like each other. Find ways to make us see the humanity in one another. That you don't lose. But everything else is everything else is just cake icing and puffing to compared to that. I know what I'm seeing now. I'm 65, and I know what I'm seeing. And what I'm seeing is struggle. And so I am. If you're about to struggle, then by God, I hope you write 100 books. But if you're not, I'm going to step right past you and move to the next thing. Because mm-hmm. what kind of world are we leaving our kids with? We, where fire starts in Canada and we can't breathe in New York. So I don't really waste too much time. If a novel doesn't want to make you change, if it doesn't make want to make you be a better person, what's the point of writing it and what's the point of reading it? Thanks so much to James McBride for stopping by. Also, thanks to Julia Rickert and Hannah Lopez at Riverhead for helping put this together. Special production assistance this week from Amanda Bacor at Book Riot. If you want to get more first edition stuff, check out the show notes and get links to the dedicated email newsletter, Instagram, and Twitter. If you have a minute to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, that would be wonderful. Shoot me an email, first edition at bookriot.com. I love feedback, love emailing back and forth with listeners. And until next time, read something great.